You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out all trouble and drunk. Beat out all trouble and drum, beat out old trouble and drum, and kick old trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum, beat me that rhythm on the drum, beat me that rhythm on the drum, and kick old trouble out the door. Kick him out the door, kick him out the door, kick him out the door, kick him out the door. Welcome. Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. The program is podcast. You'll be able to access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. And today we have a woman online who I've been wanting to interview for generations. Catherine Murdoch, how art thou? Good morning, Joe. Well, it's not morning. It's not morning. We don't have morning or afternoon in radio. Right. Okay. (laughs) You're in the present time, I am. Yes. Catherine Murdoch. Now, I've got to ask you the question everybody asks you. Are you a progeny of Mr. Murdoch? Absolutely not. You're not part of the family? Definitely not connected, though it was a valuable family name to have when I worked in the pay TV industry. Oh, and by you're not like that uh, niece of Mr. Trump who wrote a book. You haven't written a book about Mr. Murdoch and, and his sons? I've got better things to do with my time, Joe. You're the type of person we want on Radical Australia. For a minute there, I thought I was going to have a hard interview and give you a hard time. <laughs> But no, it's not going to happen. Now, Catherine, you know the drill. Cause I, have you ever listened to Radical Australia? I have. Well, it's very simple. We start at the beginning and we end at the end. So <laughs> just to orientate our listeners, uh, if, you're, if you're really sensitive, I can ask you what decade you were born in, but I can ask you what year you were born. I was born in 1964. 64. Oh, that's a good year to be born. I was, what, 13 in 1964? That wasn't a bad year. I used to think I was... Yeah, that was not a bad year. Were you born in Australia? Yes, I was born in Coburg. Actually, in Coburg, a home birth? No, I was born at the John Faulkner Hospital. (laughs) Really? That would have been a little little cosy little hospital in those days. And uh, are your parents still alive? Um, as far as I know, it was a cosy hospital. It yeah. was a premature birth, so I had an extended stay wow. in an incubator. Mm. And um, my mum passed in 2006. 
Yeah. And, um, sorry, 2008. Yeah. And my dad passed when I was 25. Yeah. Ironically, well, not ironically, he died in that hospital. Mm. And I had a couple of visits in there when my mum was in there being cared for as well. So right. mm. haven't been there recently. Well, yeah, you'd have a lot of unhappy memories. And um, any brothers and sisters? I'm one of five siblings, surviving um, siblings, Mm -hmm. yes. Right. So what was life like for a young girl in Coburg in the late 60s and early 70s with four four siblings, four brothers and sisters and parents? Um, Well, I grew up in Essendon. What, upwardly mobile? I was in a, a family fanatical football-orientated scenario. We were within um, hearing distance of Windy Hill. My ex-brother-in-law played for Essendon. Mm. And um, I was was actually quite privileged because my mum and dad married after the Second World War Mm -hmm. um, when dad returned from the Merchant Navy and moved from Castlemaine um, to... Um, a little suburb near Reservoir, the name escapes, Regent. Regent, that's right. You know, Regent, yep. Regent, like Dallas, is the Turak of Reservoir. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my siblings and mum and dad did the hard yakka there, the pinching the pennies, the clothes passed round mm. through the family and the country cousins. Um <sighs> And, you know, they had a country upbringing. And so by the time they built their house in Essendon, um, money was, wasn't was as tight and I felt that, you know, I was, I was quite privileged growing up. Um, three of my siblings married and moved out of that home by the time I was five years old. Wow. So what, you were a late fort as far as the family was concerned, were you? You're the youngest. Absolutely. Right, you're an, you're an um, accident. I was um, a change of life baby yeah, or an yeah, accident. Yeah. My mum was 42 and then 18 months later, the doctor did talk to her about the fact that contraception was now available. Mm. Um, however, 18 months later, she decided to have another child so I wasn't a ruined Bruin, as she termed it. <laughs> and she had another child? Absolutely. Uh, my brother, Peter. And, and was he premature? No. <laughs> well, you know, you did very well because in 64, to be born premature could have been a death sentence, you know? So mm. you must have had very good care. Yes. Mm. I, I haven't thought of it in those terms, Joe, but... There you go. No, it is. It was very, very unusual. You're what, 34, 36 weeks, I reckon? Premature, you would have been... Yes, what? correct. Yeah, because yeah. kids that were born after, before 32 weeks didn't survive in 64. Mm, mm. They do now because of mm. uh, they need to be ventilated. Well, mm-hmm. so can I ask you a personal question? Nobody's listening. Nobody listens to Radical Australia, Catherine. Mm. Did you go to a Catholic primary school? No. No? Um, no. <laughs> Our family home backed onto St Columbus Mission in Woodland Street. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and no, I went to Essendon Primary School, walked there and back. My mum didn't drive, and um, yeah. So you you were Protestants, were you? We were Presbyterian yes, before yes. they became united. In church, yeah. No wonder you wouldn't go to the Catholic school. That was <laughs> no, well, yeah. That's the the old divisions, you know. Proto, was it provos and Catholics? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. Did you did you kind of abuse the Catholic kids as you walk past the school? Absolutely not. <laughs> Good. So, what was what was life like for a little girl at uh, Essendon Primary School? Um, I actually really didn't enjoy primary school that much. It was a rude awakening in terms of what the world was like outside the sanctuary of the family home um, and I had some her- I had some great teachers mm-hmm. and I had some horrific teachers who were absolutely brutal bullies mm-hmm. yeah. um, and so a lot of my learning during that time I'd walk into that classroom and I would freeze I was in survival mode um, trying to be invisible so I wasn't um, pulled up and ridiculed in front of the whole class. So so there was no corporal punishment then, like in my day? No. It was just ridicule. No, it wasn't. Uh, why would they ridicule you? You're a pretty bright young thing. I think you'd have to delve into their psyches, Joe, right. yes. to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a good school... Um, my younger brother wound up being ducks of that school. He flourished in that environment. Um, but I remember it, you know, being mm. quite challenging. Right. And I assume you were brilliant on the sporting field. Well, Joe, <laughs> when I moved on to Strathmore Secondary College, my swimming ability was discovered. Um, Another Dawn I, Fraser have we got here. <laughs> I um, did my um, three swimming certificates at the Brunswick Bars. I learned to swim there. Mm. What did they call it then? Your junior, your senior and your bronze level. Yeah. Um, And was in a swimming squad there for a while. And then at Strathmore Secondary College, we had a pool. So I hit the swimming squad. Great. Mm. And what what house, what schoolhouse were you in? Do you remember? In primary school, I was in Raleigh. Yeah, but in, in, in secondary school, when you're at Strathmore, I don't think we had them. Didn't have house, so you didn't have you didn't have something to kind of shout out before you jumped in the pool and did competitive racing against another school, a school song no. or something, nothing like that. No, no, just hitting that pool at five a.m. For training before school, um, being very, very hungry at recess time, yeah. and um, and then swimming at the um, you know at a state level yeah. at the swimming centre, mm-hmm. which has now become something else in the city. It's called something else now. Is Albert Park? Is it? No. It's in the city. Um, oh. Opposite Tennis Stadium. Right. And I forget the name of what it's called now. Sorry. No, no, no that's all right. Mm. 
say? Were you were you destined for greatness, or did you hit the glass ceiling, as they say in swimming? Ever make the state team? I did. Really? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. What year was that? Ah, oh, Joe, that's a difficult question. What seventy eight or something? Seventy nine? No? We'll go with that. We will. Yeah. So you made yes. the state team. I did. And uh, in the relay or the individual events? I swam in a relay and an individual event. Freestyle or some of those exotic freestyle? Yeah, that's what I'd expect from mm. a woman like you, Catherine. Freestyle it had to be freestyle. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that's... a woman like me? Well, look, 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 look. I think I need to let the listeners know that I, I have met you on a number of barricades and <laughs> campaigns, and uh, freedom has always been your banner. So even then, while you were swimming, and let's get away from your swimming career. Obviously, you never made the Olympics, did you? No, definitely not. Or the Commonwealth Games. No. I don't know if I want to talk to you anymore. I thought However. I had. I thought I had a champ here. <laughs> However, Joe, I was an extra um, filming a couple of television commercials oh. at the um, State Aquatic Centre with well-known swimming identities. Oh. How's that? Does that count? Yes, it does. We'll continue the interview. You've re- you know you've rehabilitated yourself as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. So, did you excel anything else at high school, like some of the academic subjects? Sorry, what was that question? Did you, uh, is there any particular subject you liked in high school that you excelled at? I loved literature. Mm-hmm. Um, I enrolled in children's literature, Australian literature, English literature, every possible form mm-hmm. and just adored it. I'm a passionate reader um, and history and geography were close behind that. Right, so when you got that horrible VCE mark, uh, were you able to pursue any of that? Oh, I didn't stay in the system that long, Joe. Hang on, you didn't get to grade 12? No. Why not? What's going on here? I, I was out of there at the end of term two, year 10. Really? You were um, 16, you would have been, yeah? 15, yeah, 16? Nearly 17. 17. I said enough is enough. Right. Um, Interestingly, I remember one of my science teachers going off his rocker at us one day about how we were nothing but sponges, just (laughs) soaking up information and spitting it back. And I'm like, well, holy shit, this is what the education system has taught me to do to survive. And that was it. I went, I've just had enough. I can't do this any longer. And I went into full-time work. What did your parents think of this? Um, My parents were comfortable with me leaving school. Um, Two of my, only I think one of my siblings went on to university and became a teacher. My eldest brother um, did HSC and went into the workforce. Another brother did a um, butcher's apprenticeship after mum and dad found out that he was not spending very much time at Essendon Tech at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
And my younger brother left when he was about the same age and went into the workforce. So this would have been about the times of the moratoriums when you uh, left. Is that correct, school? I think so, yes. Were you involved in that or was it just something that just passed you by, basically? It passed me by. Right. So what was your first job? Um, First job was in retail. Mm Mm-hmm. I um, wanted to be a fashion buyer. <laughs> a fashion buyer? Does that mean yeah. you, did, you didn't have the body to be a fashion model? Absolutely. Um, my sister and her ex-husband owned a chain of retail stores in Ooh, South Australia. Right. And I used to go over there for school holidays. Mm-hmm. And I'd go around to all the fashion houses with her when they were picking the season's range and I'd come home with a fabulous wardrobe, and that's what I decided I wanted to do. So this would be the great early 1970s, wouldn't it? There would be fabulous clothes available. And retail was booming. Yeah, it was, yeah. I remember those days. Mm. I had my thick mm. corduroy hipster uh, <laughs> pants where would you get them in 2021, you know? You couldn't find them. So what were you wearing, just out of interest? What was I wearing? I mean, you're, you're a young um, woman. You're, you're kind of in the retail. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm in retail. So every six months I get a brand new wardrobe at 50% off. Right. Um, on a more radical day, I might be wearing a striped nighty with a belt around it. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Some stockings, Joe. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The things we wore in the 70s. (laughs) When you look at pictures of yourself, you wonder, don't you? Well, I don't care. It was fun. It was fun. My earlobes have never recovered from some of those really heavy earrings, though, Joe. Yeah, yeah, I remember them. (laughs) Yep. I actually bought a, a purple car to go for my purple corduroy pants because it was quite interesting then because there were jobs were a plenty and you could just walk in and get a job mm. and make a bit of money. Mm. You know, yes. when you left school, it was not like now where you got to do a pre-apprentice no. course to actually apply for apprenticeship. You just walked out and mm-hmm. went to a job. I remember I used to when I used to finish um, high school. You you know was at university you'd have three months off. You go down to the local industrial estate. You'd knock on doors. And within three knocks, you'd, you'd have a job. Did you find the same experience? Um, absolutely. Which, And, you know, we were always brought up respecting the value of money. And, um, you know, we earned pocket money by doing different chores. Then we did the Essendon Gazette paper round with a big shopping trolley around the streets delivering the local weekly newspaper. Mm. Then, of course, we upgraded to go and work in my brother's butcher shop, um, you know, washing all the meat trays, cleaning out the freezer, doing anything that needed to be done. And, you know, I was like 12 when I was doing that job, getting up on Saturday mornings at 4 o'clock and stuff. So... Always worked, always earned money, and yeah, you're right. You know, I decided I was going to leave school. I mum said, you know, you've got to get a job. Um, went for a couple of interviews, got the second interview, bang, I was in. Mm. Um, but I was really lucky because the organisation that I went to work for also had a trainee management program. 
So within a year, I was on a cadetship that was for um, three years and a one-year trainee management program, which gave me a pathway career-wise and the opportunity to um, learn more skills. Mm, yeah, it's, it's very sad when I look at young kids these days, what they've got to go through once they leave uh, high school. And th- that opportunity is not available to kids who decide not to go on to a tech college or, or university these yeah. days. It's, it's just not there. Uh, the joys of privatisation and globalisation, I think, um, Catherine. So everything seems Absolutely. to be going... Yeah, everything seems to be going hunky-dory for you. So when did things kind of... Um, so how long did you last in that job and what happened next? I was in that job, I was um, went into an assistant management role within 12 months and then management roles, and I was with that organisation for eight and a half years. Um, and then I moved to Bendigo and worked for Maya right. in Bendigo, managing the men's fashion, Joe. Right, but there were no corduroys by that time, I can assure you. No. That was the 80s. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lots of uni students who cared about what they looked like on the weekends, mm. and yeah, it was that was a pretty thriving business. Not like today. No. No. So, how long did you last in Bendigo? A year and a half. And then? Then I moved to Adelaide with my ex-husband. Excuse um, me, and- Catherine. I just don't want to. I don't- Oh, your ex. Oh, fine. You're still married. You moved to Adelaide. I thought you got married and got divorced when you knew nothing about it. Between <laughs> when you're in Bendigo, no, you moved to Adelaide with your ex-husband, right? Great. Yep. Yep. Person I was having a relationship with at the time. Mm-hmm. I got transferred across with Maya into their city store mm-hmm. and managed the intimate apparel department, and my ex-husband. Um, went across and did a PhD and worked with Uni of Adelaide and CSIRO. Right, right. And I had a sister in Adelaide. That's right. She, she owned, what, a chain chain of shops, you were telling us. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So how long did you last in Adelaide for? <laughs> I was in Adelaide for about um, 15 years all up. Right. I, um, I have gone back. I think it's important to know to study. You know, I did an associate diploma of business slash marketing through TAFE, through um, Footscray TAFE, Loddon TAFE, um, and Adelaide TAFE. And um, yeah, so I was in that job and then left that, left Maya and went to work for Australis Media, which was Australia's first pay TV company. That's a big mm. change, but you're a manager basically. You've been trained as a manager, so mm. yeah, yeah. So, uh, mm. so how does a a manager who's done all the right things? I assume your parents were Scottish Presbyterian, were they? Um, my mum's side of the family are from the UK, from a little village called. Salmonby, which is just out of Lincolnshire. Right. And, um, you know, my dad's family, as I said, were from Castlemaine. Yeah. Um, yeah. My great grandfather was the mayor of Eagle Hawk, Joe. Ooh. Yeah, How's I remember that? Eagle I actually went to Eagle Hawk. You're going to find this very funny. I went mm. to Eagle Hawk in 1972 
to a meeting which had been organised to set up the Eagle Hawk Community Health Centre. Because in those wow. because in those days the uh, Whitlam led Labor government had been elected, it could have been seventy three, and their job was to provide medical care at the local level. So they bypassed the states and set up the community health care centres. And all you needed to do was organise mm. a meeting and then you'd get a grant and you could set up the community health centre. I remember going to Eagle Hawk then. It was a very poor suburb, very hard suburb then. Mm. I don't think much has changed, has it? I think it has changed, has definitely. It? It's trending now, yeah. is it? Right. Yeah, and then there's a lot of outreaching suburbs that are more affordable. Right. Yeah. No, you've got yeah. the Presbyterian story there. You know, you work hard, nose to the grindstone, <laughs> make money. This doesn't sound like the Catherine I met on the barricades. When did things start going wrong for you, Catherine, in terms of your managerial aspirations? <laughs> well, first of all, I've got to say, I think when I was about eight, going to Sunday school and, and being part of that um, Presbyterian church, I started having a look around and and questioning um, what people were preaching about and then their behaviours towards other people in the parish, persecution of a Sunday school teacher I adored. And so I um, I quit the church. I said, that's it. You what? know, I when don't you were like 10? what I'm when seeing. You were 10, I was about, I was that age when I made those judgment calls. Right. And I was out of it. And um, I didn't set in churches except for weddings. I refused to sing. Um, <laughs> I um, put my foot down, definitely. Mm. And it wasn't until I was travelling through Europe um, when I first started travelling that I had an appreciation um, for churches again in terms of being um, a... The feeling that you can get in that space when a nice space has been created, the peacefulness, the tranquility. Mm. So, so what year did you first travel overseas? When I was twenty-five. What did you think? I mean, that's uh, twenty-five. That'd have been what mid-eighties. So, mm. what did mm. you think? Where'd you land? Um, first trip I went to or we went to um, Italy, Switzerland, <sighs> France. I was very lucky to have an ex-sister-in-law who was based in Switzerland mm-hmm. and um, yeah, so I was really excited. I was excited about the freedom of when you're travelling, you're un- unknown to everyone and you can be whoever you want Mm. without any concern about repercussions or judgments. Um, I I loved um, spending time in small villages and really observing community and watching the daily rituals of life. That's what I loved most about my travels. What did you think of Switzerland? I found Switzerland very beautiful and expensive. That's right. (laughs) We all find it expensive. (laughs) Um, Apart from chocolate. And um, 
quite restrictive yes, in is. terms of the protocol um, and, mm. and yeah, you didn't want to step out of line. No, you should have gone... you could offend people. You should have gone to the Tunisi province, you know, the Italian part of Switzerland up near yeah, the Italian yeah. border. They're, they're not as strict up there. No. no. <laughs> so, um, okay, look, I'm interested. You've got a fairly normal life at the minute, you know. You've mm. travelled as a young Australian woman. You've got married. You've moved from town to town. You're earning a living... Mm-hmm. Um, when did things start going wrong for you? Not in terms of personally, but in terms of you mm. changing from a person who kind of felt everything was hunky-dory and just started questioning what was happening around you. Was there a pivotal moment or you just gradually, you know, worked your way into um, that activity? There was a... Th- I would say at age 35, the mirror well and truly cracked for me. Um, I was married, um, successful. We bought a house. We had a, a beach property in Adelaide, that, I mean in Normanville, that we shared with another couple. And it was a great feeling of dissatisfaction that I had I'd done everything that I'd been taught I needed to do to achieve happiness and so-called success and um, I wasn't feeling a sense of wholeness or completeness. I was starting to feel very restless and and a bit pissed off (laughs) at that realisation, I must say. So what, you had a midlife crisis before you reached I did, midlife. at 35. At 35, you kind of got in early. So what are the consequences of those feelings? What are the consequences? The consequences are... Um, you said your mirror cracked, so there must have been major yeah, consequences. Yeah, the mirror cracked. So um, I separated and then divorced from my husband. I left what was the relative corporate world that I'd been working in. Um, I did a sea change and moved to the Fleuria Peninsula. And, of course, um, financially, there's big repercussions. And I knew, I was very aware when I made that decision, um, what I could be facing, but I had to do it, so I did it anyway. Right. Did everybody think you were mad? Because here you are, you've got Possibly. a perfect life, you know. Did anybody kind of pull you up yeah. and say, what are you doing, Catherine? I don't think that directly, Joe. Mm. You know, I remember at the time I spent a hell of a lot of time um, consoling or counselling people to help them understand um, why I was making those decisions, but no one pulled me up, right. so to speak, yeah. Do you regret what happened? No. You don't? Well, that's that's no. interesting. So you went towards the Fleur, did you say Fleur Peninsula? Fleuria Peninsula. I moved to a little place called Salex Beach, um, about 15 minutes from McLaren Vale. Right. And what were you doing there? I was trying to survive um, financially on Newstart. Right. Um, and I did whatever I needed to do. I um, trained vines, worked in hospitality, 
um, picked olives, um, cleaned domestically and commercially because higher paying um, opportunities weren't available in regional South Australia. And, you know, I've, I've burnt out quite a few times, so I wasn't prepared to do the commute to Adelaide to work in a job that would pay me um, the bucks that I needed. Right. right. So how long did this last for? I would say four years. Right. Then I moved back to Melbourne. Right. So when you're approaching 40, you come back to Melbourne. You come to Melbourne. Is this the first time you've come to Melbourne? Yeah, I know you were born here, I, but since you started yeah. your journey, is this the first time you you came back? I would come back um, a couple of times a year, mm-hmm. um, come back for Christmas, that sort of thing. Right. I was very close to my mum. I loved my mum dearly, and I'd come back as often as I could um, to spend time with her. And, um, yeah, after I turned 40, I'm living in Victor Harbour, um, working my guts out seven days a week, living on toast, um, renting privately, and I went, oh, this has got to change. Right. Well, you couldn't have picked a more expensive suburb to rent in than Victor, Victor Harbour. Harbour. <laughs> <laughs> it was affordable then. Do you remember those days? It was affordable, Joe. Yeah, but you were working seven days a week. Uh, yeah, I was. All right, so you come back to Melbourne and you're 40. Things don't yep. look bright, to be honest. No, they're not. <laughs> um, my, my, moved... Our producer here, Kelly's shaking her head because she's uh, reached the age of 40. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think she's identifying with your story. I'm a bit worried about <laughs> it. She may need counselling <laughs> after this interview. <laughs> um, so at 40, um, the prodigal daughter returns to Melbourne and... She saved a bit of money. She saved a bit of money. She's not in debt. She moves back into the family home and agrees uh, I'm going to, to ask you a question, Catherine, because yep. this is something I'm really interested in. When you moved back into the family home, did you move back into your bedroom that you used as a child? Oh, la, la. Yes, I did. <laughs> With... It happens to all of us. <laughs> that single bed? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> the same post as the same wallpaper. Yes, I know the feeling. <laughs> all right, well, all right. You move back to the family home, and did they ask you to pay rent? Absolutely. Yeah, Presbyterians, obviously. <laughs> Discounted rent. I think it was fifty bucks a week mm-hmm. to help me get back on my feet. What does that term mean, to get back on my feet? So um, I also agreed to share care of my mum, who'd been living in Adelaide with my sister. The family home had been empty while she was there. And so I wound up with full-time care of, or being the full-time carer for my mum um, in Essendon. Yeah. And how long did you care for your mum for? It was a short period of time because oh. she deteriorated quite quickly. Yeah. Um, I was working. She went into a place called Trevi Court in Buller Road 
um, low-level care. And um, so the good thing about that was I was able to walk into that place any time of the day or night and go into my mum's room and check how she was and do a bit of housekeeping and that was a bonus for me. Yes. It's, it's, it's really hard when you lose both your parents, when you, both your parents die. It's, it's kind, mm. kind of a shock, really, because it kind of drives home the ability that you're going to die sooner or later, I find. Mm-hmm. So I assume because you loved your mum so much, it was a um, mm. very difficult time after she died? It was. It was really hard. I mean, of course, there'd been quite a number of close calls before that. Mm. Um, you know, when when she died, I remember the day of her funeral going, oh, my God, you have to get out of this bed. You have to put clothes on and you need to put a public face on and go to her funeral. Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult. And so- it was. Mm. So, again, this is just a pretty normal life, Catherine. Mm. I mean, you just... Do you think so? I think you just, up till the age, up till the time your mother died, it's the type of thing a lot of people go through, you know, relationships, separation, failed work, blah, blah, blah. So you're still still on the beaten track for an Australian citizen, you know. So when did things kind of go... A why? When did you start looking around and seeing organisations or activities you felt drawn to? Um, I would say that was... Oh, oh okay, 2012. Right. So I was a late bloomer. Mm-hmm. Um, 2012, I was working as a branch manager for Alison Monkhouse Funerals in Brunswick. Yes. And, and the G- Ginarelli brothers were your competition, yeah, I assume. Yes, totally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we won't talk about them. We may get sued. No. no. <laughs> no they, were, they, were, they were famous in the funeral industry, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I volunteered to help a campaign called Stand Up for the Burrup, which was Stand about... Up for the what? Um, Burrup. Stand Up for the ancient rock art sites on the Burrup Peninsula right. in Western Australia yeah. and trying to bring in World Heritage listing. What, what, why so volunt- were- why, yeah, I understand that, but why? I mean, you've just had a, a normal life and all of a sudden you, you volunteer for this organisation. Why? Um, I'd done volunteering work before Mm -hmm. um, and had been involved in other volunteer programs. And, okay, I think the basis of why anyone becomes active um, and passionate about different issues is because if you're not involved in change or being a voice for the people who can't speak or doing something about it, you could just curl into a ball of depression, despondency, despair and grief and stay there. Right. So basically it was therapy for you. 
I know, I know. I've been facetious. I don't mean it's therapy. It's it, yeah, it, it, it's a mutual. It's a it's of mutual benefit. It's a benefit to the person involved mm. because it gives them a mm. sense of purpose, and it's a benefit to the organisation they become involved with because you promote the the aims and objectives of that organisation. And I think a lot of people think that being an activist is a sacrifice. It doesn't have to be mm. a sacrifice. It's a mutually beneficial arrangement. That's my experience. Absolutely. I mean, number one, when you're involved in something that you're passionate about, it feeds your spirit, it feeds your soul. Um, and the amazing people that you get to connect with, you find your tribe, you know, you, you meet some amazing people, develop skills, and you're involved in something that lights your fire. Right. Now, that particular issue is still alive, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because it mm. still hasn't been resolved, has it? No, no, yeah. it hasn't. Yeah. So how long did you work with them for? I worked with them for about a 12-month period. Right. And um, that also led to a lot of connections developing with people in Sydney and Canberra at the 10 Embassy um, in Sydney who were running Occupy Sydney and the Free Food Kitchen in Martin Place. So a lot of re relationships developed from that. I went up to Canberra to the 10 Embassy, um, met people, met the elder and the senior lawman um, who were in Canberra to speak and we were approaching politicians at that time and then this amazing network of people grew from that. Right. How did you find the task of approaching politicians? You must be much more patient than I've ever been. I didn't do that, job. Right. <laughs> I didn't think you'd be up to it, to be honest. No. You wouldn't be, ser you wouldn't be servile enough, I don't think. No, no. no. I w I, I'm happy to, you know, give advice, to edit, to talk about all these other things, but the last place I wanted to be was in front of that politician in Parliament. Right, right. So you'll be you're yeah. one of these people who's behind the scenes who's absolutely necessary for the survival of that organisation. We call you draft horse activists. You draft do draft horse? Yeah, you do the work. There's nothing wrong with a draft horse. The draft horse is a very important animal in 19th century world. They pulled the plough. Without the draft horse, there'd be no wheat, no barley. Yes. yes. So, you know, there's, there's two types of people in, in the activist world, show ponies... And draft horses. <laughs> Show ponies. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's I people who, want the, who take the glory but don't do the work and people who do the work and shun the glory. And obviously okay. you're one of them. Unlike me, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been on the steps of Parliament many a time with you, Joe. so I really I don't think you can put yourself in that category. No, we were, you're one of the survivors of the 10-day action at the end of 2018 on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. Yeah, I remember that. The rain, yes. the hail, the lightning, yes. the wind, yes. the police. <laughs> just yes. went on and on. Security cameras, the lack of toilet facilities. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, my favourite time of being in Parliament was when um, Lydia made her maiden speech. Right, when she was the when member for Northcote. Yeah. Yes, and 
my God, that was just the most incredible day to be there, to witness that, to see the joy that people were feeling, the hope, um, the pride. Mm -hmm. And I was inside Parliament um, and, you know, it was such a powerful speech and I was really grateful to be there for that. So that's the one time I've had a really amazing experience inside Parliament. Right. Now, can I ask you a question about that moment? Were there many other members in Parliament? Because normally when somebody gives a first-time speech, they all piss off and have a coffee or a beer or something. Mm. Were there many members in Parliament when she gave her speech? Yes, there were. Oh, that's good. And... um, the, the building was just at capacity. It was packed. No, I'm talking Absolutely about the actual parliamentarians. Packed. No, but in, in the actual parliament, yes, there were. Oh, that's excellent. There were. That's good to see. Yes. Yeah. And good. parliament had a heart mm. and a heartbeat, and it was alive. It yeah. was amazing. Right. So what are the type of other type of campaigns you've been involved in? Um, I've been a core member of the Indigenous Social Justice Association, Hang on, hang on, um, hang on, hang on. Let's, mm-hmm. Indigenous Social Justice. Indigenous As- Social Justice, Ishta, Melbourne. What's social justice? Social justice, or Ishta, our main purpose is to stop deaths in custody right. and to support families who are impacted by deaths in custody. Right. How long have you been doing that for? Um, I've been at Action since 2013 and a core member probably since about 2017. Right. And how do you find the response in the community to your campaigns? The responses in the community have been very positive. Um, I remember being at Footscray Station... Um, about two years ago when we were trying to get the... Um, we were campaigning stop, stop jailing out, stop failing our kids and preventing the new Cherry Prison um, facility being built and trying to age the... raise the age of criminalisation. And it was amazing. You know, people were very positive. They were aware because there had been... Um, the media attention that was given to Dylan when those photographs were released of him um, and his treatment in juvenile detention. And people knew someone. They, they, had, they were families that they'd either been um, incarcerated themselves or members of their family had, and they were quite aware and quite receptive so generally, when we're in Brunswick, Smith Street, Footscray, we find that we get very positive responses. Right. And so what are you actually trying to achieve in that organisation? Um, for there to be zero deaths in custody, for the 339 recommendations from the Royal Commission into deaths in custody, which was 30 years ago, getting those implemented, you know, there's 440 deaths to date or murders, they are murders, um, at stopping those. Right. And 
do you think things have changed in the last uh, few years? I think that there has been change in terms of awareness and I think that George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement turned the spotlight on in Australia um, in terms of people acknowledging it is an absolutely horrendous issue here. Right. Is there any other campaigns you've been involved in that you want to talk about? Um, yeah, passionately involved in um, public housing, extending and defending public housing. Um, I remember you used to stopping. come every... You, when we could, you used to come every week. Even, yep, absolutely. Even when you were working on the steps of Parliament House to hold the banner. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, doing that, um, actions by friends of public housing and the other bodies who organise and also um, for a number of years actively supporting people who were living without homes in Melbourne as much as I could. Right. Does that come through personal experience or more of an um, academic interest in public housing? definitely um, personal experience and as well the desire to see people and what they're going through and to support them in any way I can. Right. And how do you feel about your life these days? Well, Joe, I'm pretty bloody happy. I feel... um, I feel very grateful for so many things in my life and I feel very grateful for the opportunity to be involved in so many things that I'm very, very dear about. Um, As I think you might be aware, I moved out of a rooming house where I'd been living for four years, a female-only rooming house, into my own um, public housing, one-bedroom place last October. Yes, yes. So that has just been huge for me, absolutely incredible. I think you've raised an exceptionally important issue. Uh, the fact is that housing security is the number one priority, especially of older women in uh, our society at the minute because, as you said, the experiences you had, you find yourself with nothing although you've been involved mm-hmm. in a relationship for many years. And uh, mm. I was, what surprised me when I was in, continue to be involved in the public housing struggle was the number of older women who are actually ho- who are homeless or in insecure mm. accommodation and living mm-hmm. on the streets. And people mm-hmm. who just had ordinary lives and find themselves in these extraordinary circumstances, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It, no one's immune. No one is immune. It's like cancer. Mm. Um, it's not selective homelessness, um, and it can happen to anyone. You know, technically, I've probably been homeless four times in my life. Um, and yeah, like, you know, it's interestingly going back to my sister, who was a, a primary school teacher, worked extremely hard all her life, is still in the workforce at the age of um, 70 and she's living in share accommodation. She doesn't own 
a home. Yes. You know, um, and it, the numbers are absolutely growing every year. Well, it's interesting when I interviewed Margaret Rodenite, who does the introduction to the. Um Program is a well-known Australian singer, very well-known Australian singer. She's now in her early seventies, I think, or mid seventies, mm. and she's in exactly the same situation of not ex- of ha- not having housing security. And this is mm. somebody who's made a significant contribution to, to Australian life. Mm. No mm-hmm. housing security and the threat of homelessness mm-hmm. is always yeah. around the corner. If you're renting or yeah. if you're yeah. in, um, you know, these so-called um, affordable housing situations, you know, these privately owned so-called public housing and it just goes on and on. Yep, yep, community housing. You're in a rooming house, but the nice term community housing is used for it. Yeah, and uh, you're paying, you know, top-notch rents for minimal services. Absolutely, absolutely. And getting traumatised at the same time. Yeah. Now, we've got only about three or four minutes left. What I'd like to ask you is what are your plans for the future? My plan for the future is, you know, to enjoy every day as much as I can. I love being in nature. Um, the weight, the weight that has been removed from me physically, emotionally, mentally and spiritually being housed, knowing I've got a home. I have a home and I can afford to live in it for the rest of my life and I can have a quality life, you know. So it's the opportunity to... Um, continue to be involved with amazing people in terms of um, creating change with horrendous human rights injustices in Australia. Mm. Well, I think you've got your life planned better than most people. You've been actually liberated. The fact that they've given you a little bit, yep. a little space somewhere yep. in the city means yep. that you've got that anchor. That you need to go out there and cause all the trouble you can to ensure other people enjoy the same uh, benefits. And that's what it's about, isn't it? That's what activism is about. It's not about you and the individual. It's about the impact you have on society. You know, look, Mm -hmm. I've I've always appreciated um, your contribution to things I've been involved in because it's sometimes people join for a variety of reasons, but I think you've joined, you know, I think your background is what's allowed you to join for the right reason, and that is to actually improve things for other people. Mm. But it's not a sacrifice, as you said. It's a, it's mutually no. beneficial. Mm. And mm, just, absolutely. And just out of interest, as we well, you're much younger than I am, but as I'm approaching, you know, the, uh, the, the my fate, which could be deaf at some stage. Now, <laughs> how, it your, does happen. It happens, yeah. How's your struggle for spirituality going? Have you got, have you got any doors for me, any re- organisation I can join to get eternal life? Or have you given that up? Oh, no, Joe. no. Um, my thing at the moment is philosophy. During, co- during COVID last year, the Yarra Libraries and the Melbourne School of Philosophy gave us a free program via Zoom that was meant to run for six weeks. Mm. It's still going. And um, that's another connection with wonderful people who keep asking the questions and learning and exploring and who respect everyone's perspective and point of view. So no spiritual advice for you, Joe. Mm. Continue that healthy eating plan, eating that garlic, yes. you know. <laughs> stay active. 
and and keep the conversations going. But, you know, the thing is about this death thing, one tremendous relief for me is, especially, you know, I've worked in the funeral industry, is the, the fact is we all die. We're moving towards death every day. And Western society treats it like it's a disease and it's something not to be talked about. Um, so I love the freedom that the philosophy group um, gives me to explore that as well. Well, all I can say, Catherine, has been a pleasure talking to you today. The program will be podcast and hopefully this uh, this interview or this chat, I wouldn't call it an interview, this, this, this conversation uh, gets other people uh, activated so that they, they can do things like you. And as you said... You're a late bloomer, but you've made up for it in the last uh, 15 years or so. So all the best. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today, and hopefully our listeners will learn something. And uh, all the best, and keep on punching above your weight. Thank you, Joe. It has been a pleasure. You, it's been it's been a pleasure. It's been good fun, and um, thank you for everything you do. Um, it was amazing to be at the event last Wednesday for our Freedom Fighters. And um, I will see you soon, hopefully. Yes, I'm hoping to uh, be out there on the barricades within the next fortnight. I've got plans. All the very best and look after yourself. Excellent. Thank you. There's a cold rain on the autumn wind A brother murdered in Sydney town Mark for brother on a supposed eagle Covering his home to gunned him down We say oh, 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 Gunned him down Sad rivers of tears Two hundred years in the river of fear Gunned him down They took him out of point blank range in his home with his small young son. Shot him dead in his marble bed with a pump action 12 gauge shotgun. Fatherless child, even wife, a black fugitive on the run. On the run, two centuries from oppression's loaded guns. We say, oh, 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 Gunned him down. Sad rivers of tears, 200 years in the Terrorists dressed in uniform under the protection of their law. Terrorized blacks and dawns of fear that come smashing through your door. You're not safe outside on Freedom Street, you're not safe inside the camp. There's shotguns and there's stun guys, the license to drop you where you stand. We say, whoa, whoa. Gunning down
people out there in the radio world show some love to 3CR you know and if you're listening and enjoying the programs here yeah, man great radio station it is how how it was built by community and the community ownership and that's a powerful thing to have within community so show some love show some support and please subscribe from the north to the south to the east to the west let the baller take you home island style represent your soul to the flow love your set represent raise your pride to the sky love it like it's the best my power bring it back home You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.